Make your way, if you will, in your Bibles to Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24. Grateful to have those who visit with us. If you were here last Easter with us, we're just picking up where we left off. So it's a every year series through Luke 24 here, but we're looking at the resurrection of Christ in this great chapter. I noted a section of it last year and look at it again at a different swath of it here today. In May of 1897, the somber report was circulated that Samuel Clemens, better known as Mark Twain, was dead. Perhaps the greatest author of American fiction, news of Mark Twain's passing was received with great sorrow throughout the United States. There was, however, one man who found the report of Mark Twain's passing humorous, and that was Mark Twain. Always quick to see the humor in a situation, he penned this explanation. James Ross Clemens, a cousin of mine, was seriously ill two to three weeks ago in London, but is well now. The report of my illness grew out of his illness. The report of my death was an exaggeration. An exaggeration indeed. I guess you could say that the report of a living man's death is about as great an exaggeration as you can come up with. And of course, to expose such an exaggeration, it's not very difficult, is it? In Mark Twain's case, you just write a letter and that pretty much knocks the props out from under the rumor that you are dead. It's relatively easy and can even be a bit of good fun to prove a living man is alive and not dead, as rumor would have it. But how do you prove wrong the belief that a dead man is not still dead? How do you prove man once dead is now living again? That takes a bit more work, and it brings us to the matter at hand this Easter Sunday. For in the 24th chapter of Luke, we find Jesus striving to prove that he was alive again. Understandably, this was going to take some doing, and we find that here in this passage of Scripture. If there was one thing the aching heart of the disciples of Jesus knew... Without any dispute, it was that Jesus was dead. They had journeyed with him from Bethany to Jerusalem. If we want to look at that overhead here, just to give you a little idea of of where we are on this map, and you can make your way possibly through these uh, dotted lines. But coming from Bethany into the city of Jerusalem, they passed their way to that Last Supper, finding a home somewhere. We don't know where it is, but somewhere in this area possibly and uh, finding a place to eat the Last Supper with Jesus. They then went back out through the city and outside again to the Mount of Olives and Gethsemane in particular, and they prayed with Jesus there. They had seen him then taken by the Roman soldiers, taken back into the city and tried at the house of Caiaphas. Peter was there. He'd never forget that event. John was there as well in that house and that home that night. Then he was taken further, finally turned over to the Roman authorities, and they watched as he went out through that city once again and was crucified. Some were there as a soldier pierced his side with a spear. They knew Jesus was dead. There was no doubt about it, and echoing loudly through the corridors of their minds were his words of wisdom and challenge and comfort. 
The pictures of his miracles and the healings that he had performed or replayed in the theater of their memory over and over again. Their spirits burned with passion as they recalled his preaching and his teaching. But the joy was extinguished by the gnawing realization that the rabbi was gone. Death had swallowed their Lord and Master. Their minds searched, I'm sure, to remember His face, marked as it was by grace and understanding, but the image faded. Faded, it seemed, with each passing hour as their hearts searched for a reason to go on living. They could feel the bitter sting of His death eat away at their hearts. And hope had long fled. But a strange wind had begun to blow among them on that Lord's day. Reports circulated that Jesus had been seen alive. No, not not just alive, but alive again. Several women, including Mary Magdalene, Joanna, and James' mother, Mary, reported with great intensity that they had seen Jesus earlier in the morning. No one believed them, but Peter and John had gone to the grave and had found that it was in fact empty, and their minds were spinning, but their hearts were too broken to rejoice. He was gone. They had no way to filter what was happening to them. Two of them left the city. Apparently, it's it's possible at least, again, at this house where the Last Supper was served, but they leave the city. And they head back to their home in Emmaus. You see that on the map off to the left side there. They're journeying back about two miles to the small town of Emmaus. And on that journey, they are, we find in Luke chapter 24, downcast. I'd like to pick up the narrative there just to remember how we get into the last part of chapter 24 and what we noted last year at this time. Chapter 24 and verse 13. Now that same day, two of them were going to the village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. Notice that phrase, their faces downcast. There's no joy yet. There are references to Jesus rising from the dead. There are reports of it, but they are still downcast. They can't make any sense of it. One of them, verse 18, named Cleopas, asked him, Are you only a visitor to Jerusalem and do not know these things that have happened there in these days? What things? asked Jesus. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. You see the irony as they teach him about who Jesus is and what he had done. Verse 20, the chief priests and and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. But he had hoped, but we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of the women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. What we know about other texts is that they're really dismissing the report of the women that they have seen Christ. 
They do not know somewhere in this vicinity of this time there's an appearance to Peter. They don't know of this. They're just telling Jesus what they know as they head home to Emmaus. Notice what he says to them, verse 25. How foolish you are, how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. For our benefit, that would be essentially the Old Testament. He takes it and he lays it open for them as they're walking on the road and he explains it to them as they have never seen it before. You can imagine the burning hearts. Verse 28, as they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus acted as if he were going farther But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is nearly evening, the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them, and when he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and gave, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. And they asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. That is an amazing phrase. We'll just take one more note of the map here. So they're heading back down from Emmaus into the city, somehow gaining entrance there in the night and probably finding this room where the Last Supper was uh, observed. Maybe not the same room, but somewhere there is a room where the disciples are hiding out of fear. The Romans may be after them. There's some reports that the body of Jesus is no longer in the tomb. What might happen to them if the Roman authorities seek to talk to them about that? And so they are hiding in fear. And these two disciples come back and uh, go ahead and get that off there. We can, and they come back to the city and find the disciples. Now you can imagine they've got a story to tell, right? I don't know that they burst into the room. We, all, we do know from John's account that it was locked, and so they probably had to give the secret word or something like that. But once inside, you can imagine the excitement and the inability to keep a hat on what they had just seen. But the first thing that we find them doing is not telling the story, but listening, believe it or not. Verse 33, There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, It is true, the Lord is risen and has appeared to Simon. They thought they had the story to tell. As they come in here, the other disciples have something to tell them. It's the same message. And then, verse 35, finally the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. So they make this two-mile journey back to Jerusalem in the dark with news to kill for, and they find that it's really not in one sense news. When they do get the chance to share their story, I'm sure they do so with great excitement. There was nothing that could keep them from making that night journey back to Jerusalem. Late into the night, they swap stories with other of Jesus' followers about a resurrected Christ. When without warning, verse 36, while they were still talking about this, I don't know that this is the case. We don't have the time given to us here. But while they were still yet talking about this, seems to indicate they had spent some time discussing, sharing stories, and telling what Jesus had said. While they're still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. What we find here is that Christ begins now to offer a physical demonstration 
of His resurrection. He does this, first of all, simply by appearing to them. Now let's ask this as we think of Jesus appearing in this room. Were they holding a seance? Were they trying to call up His Spirit from the dead as Saul had done with Samuel? For that matter, were they even praying, asking for God to send Jesus back? Not at all. This appearance is wholly unsolicited and unexpected. They're startled nigh unto death here, we see. For all they knew, Jesus has visited them from the grave as a disembodied spirit. But by appearing to them in that room, Jesus starts the process of proving to them that He has in fact conquered death. But it's going to take something more than simply appearing. He appears to them and says, Peace be with you. And you see their reaction. They were startled and frightened thinking that they saw a ghost, a disembodied spirit. Peace was not exactly what entered their mind at the moment. It was fright. And the Greek word that is used here in verse 37, startled and frightened, is are very strong words. They're petrified. They're talking about this man, and here he is standing in their presence, and as John tells us in chapter 20 of his account, the doors have been locked. Now here he is, and they're shaken by it. Jesus shows himself to them physically, but he continues to demonstrate his resurrection. Secondly, by showing them his First of all, by showing them his physical body, but now he is going to show them his physical body and call upon them to demonstrate themselves that he is alive. He said to them, verse 38, why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Here it is. Watch this. Touch me, he says. Touch me and see A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. A disembodied spirit does not come physically before you. Touch me and see. Well, they're troubled. As he even says in verse 38, again, the Greek word translated here, troubled, is a strong word. They're very unsettled. Jesus asked them why this is so. Why are you troubled? He's not looking for information. Of course, he's preparing to instruct them. Ever the master teacher, what does he know must now happen? He knows that their doubt must be put under the magnifying glass of reason. Why do doubts arise in your mind? Let's look at the facts, says Jesus. So verse 39, he says, look at my hands and my feet. It's I myself. Touch me and see. Recalls, does it not, John's epistle, 1 John 1, 1 and 2. We have heard Him. We have seen Him with our eyes. We have looked at Him and our hands have touched Him. The Word of life, Jesus Christ. Paul would later, through Revelation, develop it further as to what the resurrection body is all about. Our bodies are like a seed, he says, that dies and grows into something very different, though very related. Chapter 15, verse 42 says, The body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. And putting it together, we're learning now with the disciples as we see the body of Christ, the truth about the resurrection body. It has the power, apparently, to pass through walls but it's also physical. It exists in an altered state. A number of times when Jesus appears to people in other accounts, they don't quite know who He is. He has to kind of lead them along to discover, yeah, in fact, it is you. 
But there's a flesh and bone resemblance. And it's not only a resemblance, it's a flesh and bone resurrection. Not just the disembodied spirit, but it's the actual physical being. And we notice here with Jesus that the scars remain. Now this is a little, this is opinion, uh, theological opinion, but I'm kind of thinking that in the resurrection body, probably most scars go away unless there's a reason to keep it. I don't think that the horrors of some that have suffered through accidents, through war and the like, that these uh, marks and scars and physical problems like this will probably remain. Now this is just conjecture, I don't know. But we do know that in the resurrection body, Jesus is able to point to the scars. The nails, probably through his wrists, as we've been studying on Wednesday nights, Pastor Pratt, probably through his wrists, probably through his feet, uh, or through his feet, and through the top of his feet. And also John adds that he showed them the, the spear uh, mark in his side. So he's showing them a physical body, and these wounds remain. Maybe if there's a reason throughout eternity, the scars will remain. I don't know. Maybe the scars of persecution remain. Maybe the scars of suffering for Christ remain, and the others are wiped away. We don't know, but there is a unique body. But you must understand, we must see it is a physical body. It's a body you can touch. It's a body that has resemblance to the body that we have here on earth. It is that same body. It's a resurrection body. And Jesus is showing that to them here as they are able to touch Him and to see that He is in fact not a ghost. And when, verse 40, He had said this, He then showed them His hands and His feet. And they are able to see visibly and to touch physically and to know that it is in fact Christ. And right then and there, in that bolted room, the cloud of doubt and confusion began to give way to the rays of hope. But the cloud had not lifted yet. Jesus continues to demonstrate his physical resurrection. How does he do that? Verse 41, he continues on, and while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, they're still not fully able to comprehend it. This disbelief now has less to do with doubt and more to do with the fact that they're too amazed and overwhelmed to comprehend it. They suffer something of a paralysis of stunned joy. Their hearts are so filled with wonder, they're not sure if they dare believe it all. And nurturing belief now, Jesus offers another demonstration of His resurrection. And what does He say, verse 41? Do you have anything here to eat? I would imagine that was something of a shocking question to them. Nobody's been thinking about food right at the moment. Do you have something to eat here? They gave Him a piece of broiled fish, some, some texts read, and a honeycomb. Might have been probably an addition there, but at any rate, they give him some food. It might have been more than a fish, but at any rate, they give him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. Well, ghosts don't eat food. A disembodied being cannot put physical food into its body and digest that. And again, questions arise. How does the resurrection body work? I don't know as to what happens to the food, as to whether we need it or not. Apparently, we, we will not. But we do have, in the resurrected form, the ability to eat food. And Jesus shows them this. And what we find here very clearly demonstrated is that Jesus' at resurrection was not a myth hatched by the disciples during some wild-eyed, fanatical brainstorming session long before 
the candles have taken the oxygen, or after the candles have taken the oxygen out of the air. This is not a crazed situation where they come up with this idea. By appearing to his disciples when they do not expect it, by showing him his wounds and permitting them to touch him, by eating food in their presence, Jesus proved his resurrection, and he proved that it was a physical resurrection. He gave physical demonstrations. Now, for an American, that's all there is to it. That's all you need. You get scientific proof, you've got it. Empirical evidence, it's proven. But God knows that's not enough in and of itself, and he knows that's not enough for these disciples. So Jesus offers physical demonstration of his resurrection. But notice what he does in verse 44. He offers a prophetic demonstration of his resurrection. That is, he goes to Scripture to prove his physical resurrection not only for their eyes and their hands, but for their spirits as they think on the Word of God. And he points to the fact that the coming of Jesus' resurrection was prophesied in the Old Testament Scriptures, verse 44. He said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. This is what I told you when I was still with you. Did you hear that phrase, when I was still with you? Isn't he with them right now? What does that mean, still with you? Obviously, he was still with them, but it's in a very different sense now, isn't it? Before Calvary, Jesus lived among them as a natural man. But now he is on the other side of the grave and he visits them as a glorified man whose natural abode is no longer this earth, it's heaven. And so he can speak about his former teaching as when I was still with you. There's a sense in which I'm not with you now. I'm here for now because you need to see me. But my abode is heaven, and soon will be there permanently. But he reminds them here that his resurrection, and here's the point I think we need to grasp, his resurrection has something to do with what he taught them earlier. It's not just physical proof. It's also in connection with what he had taught them earlier. Now, there's a couple of lines of thought here. First of all, he had just flat out told them that he was going to rise from the dead. Luke 18, let's remember that. He told them this would happen. He told them more than once that this would happen. Luke 18 and verse 31, Jesus took the twelve aside and he told them, we are going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written by the prophets and the, about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He will be handed over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. And on the third day he will rise again. The disciples did not understand any of this. Its meaning was hidden from them, and they did not know what he was talking about. I don't think that's so hard to figure out. There's times I read what Jesus is saying, and I say the same thing. What is he talking about? It's one of the things that's amazing about the words of Christ. People ask him questions in the New Testament. You go, I know how I'd answer that, and it's never how Jesus answers it. He thinks much more deeply, obviously, as God and his words call us to think and to contemplate. I, my point is simply this. I think the disciples heard a lot of things Jesus said that made no sense to them. They didn't have the ability to filter it. It was going to take time. It was going to take the ministry of the Spirit of God to teach them the meaning of what Jesus said. He was only here for a few short years in ministry. 
He needed to say very succinctly and specifically what he needed to say, and we've had a lot of time since then to figure it out. One person at a time, one generation at a time. But he spoke about rising from the dead, and it just went right over their head. They didn't hear it, though they heard it. So I think that's one thing that Jesus means here, that he taught them this while I was with you. I taught you about this. But you see, that's not all that verse 44 is about, is it? Everything must be fulfilled, he says, that is written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. He reminds them that the Scriptures themselves penned over centuries of time prophesy His death. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me. And we find here a threefold division of the Bible. In a sense, Jesus saying all of the Bible, the prophets, Isaiah to Malachi, the law of Moses, the first five books, the Psalms, probably as the largest section of the poetical and historical books, probably referring to that whole section of Scripture. But certainly in books such as Genesis, in books such as Exodus and Isaiah and the Psalms, we find very specific references and prophecies to Jesus coming and suffering and yet not staying in death, but rising from it. And so he points to the entire corpus of the Old Testament revelation. All of the prophecies prepared us for the death of Jesus and prepared us for the resurrection of Christ. I told you this, says Jesus, as he reminds the disciples of his consistent teaching. You really should not be shocked by my resurrection. You should have expected it all along. And all along, this is what I've been telling you. God has had this plan laid out. It's in the Word of God. It's revealed there. It's not an idea I just came up with since I came to earth. This is something that's been prophesied about me from the beginning. Notice back to verse 25 as he talked to the two on the road to Emmaus. He said the very same thing to them. Matter of fact, he was a little more specific with them. He said, how foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe. All that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? Jesus points to the fact that it's not only their inability to comprehend his teaching, it's also a fact of disbelief. We're all that way. We like to believe what we can understand. And if, that, if we're called to believe something that's a little beyond our rational powers, we have a hard time with it. The disciples were that way as well. But Jesus graciously now does not just say, you should have believed the Scriptures. He says, touch me. Give me something to eat. Watch me digest it but let's go back to the truth of God's Word. It's not just empirical evidence. It's revelation. It's the revealed truth of the Old Testament Scriptures that have told you this would happen. You could have known it if you had just believed, but I'm helping you now believe it. The Old Testament demands the coming and sacrificial death and the glorious resurrection of Messiah like Abraham reasoning that Isaac would be resurrected, so the readers of the Old Testament should have understood, should have come to the conclusion that Messiah must defeat death. How can he suffer and die? How can he also reign? Resurrection is the answer. In fact, there are explicit statements to this end if we read the Old Testament properly. Well, the, old, the disciples now are beginning to read the Old Testament properly. 
They never forgot this lesson. As the apostles write and speak in the New Testament, we see a heavy reliance upon the Old Testament as the support and guide in their understanding of the purposes of God and the salvation provided by Jesus Christ. Let's go to the other book that Luke wrote, Acts, just for a moment. In Acts chapter 2, you see Peter just two months later. All of a sudden, a scholar of the Old Testament? I don't think so. I think he's been trained and taught over the years of Jesus' ministry. But with this meeting in this room, privately with Christ, as he teaches them the Old Testament texts and how they pertain to him, Peter gets it now. It all comes together for him. And in Acts chapter 2, we find Peter preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Preaching it from the Old Testament text. Two months later, he uses Psalm 16 in Acts chapter 2 and verse 27. Acts chapter 2 and verse 27. As a matter of fact, you can go through this entire message and find that it all revolves around Old Testament prophecies. But I'll just read one part of this. Acts chapter 2 and verse 27. Peter preaches the resurrection of Christ and he says, because, verse 27, quoting Psalm 16, because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Brothers, says Peter now, preaching the Word of God. Brothers, I tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried and his tomb is here to this day. In other words, the death of David was no exaggeration. He was gone. Yet this Old Testament prophecy was made in the mouth of David. You will not let your Holy One see decay. Verse 30 then Peter says, but he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he, would not, that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. So drawing from the Old Testament prophecy, Peter preaches the resurrection of Christ as Christ had preached the resurrection to Peter in this room. We could go through so many other passages in the writings of the apostles. Think of Philip, for instance, in using in Acts chapter 8, Isaiah 53, to point to Jesus Christ as the suffering messenger. What an instruction they gained there in that room. Verse 46, now here it is, we come to a critical point in our understanding of this text in these next two verses. If you'll just endure with me a little longer. Verse 46, back in Luke chapter 24. What does Jesus teach them about the Old Testament? He told them this. This is what is written. The Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. The Christ, we could read the Messiah. The Old Testament talking about the crucifixion, the death of Jesus Christ. In other words, the death of Jesus was not an afterthought. It was not a stopgap measure designed at the last moment. It was not, in the end, a disaster. The suffering of Messiah and the resurrection of the Messiah were God's intention from eternity past. Now they get it. They now understand what all that, that all that had happened to Jesus was according to God's plan. And back in Acts chapter 2 and verse 23, Peter says this in so many words and very well. In that earlier message, 
of the, of the early church, he says, this man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. He was handed over, how? By God's set purpose and foreknowledge. The Father knew that the Son would be delivered, and He prophesied this for centuries before it happened. And Peter got it. And the disciples got it. They got the point. And notice what is at the heart of this message of Jesus' resurrection. If you come this morning with some confusion in your mind as to what it all means, and what is the point of all of this, it's not touching the physical body of Christ. That's enough. That's a phenomenal event. But it's what the death of Jesus means that's at the heart of all of this. And verse 46 says it so well, very simply, that the Christ will suffer and rise from the dead. That's what this is all about. It is about Jesus Christ dying, paying the penalty of human sin. And it's about Him rising from the dead to show, dem demonstrating that God approved of His work. It's not just a phenomenal victory over death. It's a victory that shows that what He did on the cross was real. He provided forgiveness of sin. It's easy for us, those who know the gospel, to stop here. The death of Jesus Christ and the resur resurrection of Jesus Christ. We see those in the Old Testament prophecies, but I want to force you to look a little further here. Verse 47. There's a third element here. In the original language, there are three infinitives. To die, to rise, and a third comes in verse 47, which gives us a third aspect of the Old Testament teaching, and that is this, verse 47, and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in His name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. The third infinitive in the original language is to preach. So not only does the Old Testament prophesy the death and resurrection of Christ, it also prophesies that these events will be announced throughout the world by witnesses. What is the message to be proclaimed? Verse 47, it is repentance and forgiveness of sins. If we look at the resurrection event as just an event, Jesus died and Jesus rose from the dead, we miss the whole point. It is, verse 47, the repentance and forgiveness of sins that comes through that death and resurrection that is at the heart of the Gospel. Repentance, it's a summary term for the proper response to this message of death and resurrection. Repentance involves a fundamental change of perspective about who God is, about who I am, and about how we relate to one another. And there might be some among us here today, you need a change of perspective. You need to repent. What does that mean? It doesn't mean that we get out a whip, whip anybody in the back because of things that you have done in the past, but it does mean this. First of all, you come to understand who God is, that He's the Creator, and that He is the judge of all the earth, and that you will meet Him someday. Now that's a fundamental change of perspective from the world in which I live. Most people don't believe God even cares a bit about what they're doing. Maybe the big things, maybe the real bad people, but not me. There's a change of perspective that you owe God. You owe Him for your sin, and your account will come due someday. 
There's a perspective about yourself. And what the Bible teaches us there is that what we really know inherently, and that is that we are sinful. We might rebel against that, but we know that, that we are sinners, that we have violated the will of God. If you want to, you can get through this life fairly easily by just comparing yourself with others. You will live better than somebody down here. But what you've got to do is realize that we don't compare ourselves among ourselves in God's mind. We must compare ourselves with Him. And you will fall infinitely short of infinite perfection. And it's a fundamental change about how to relate to God. It's not enough to just be a good person. In fact, being a good person is a condemnation over your head. We must realize that there's only one way to relate to God, and that is through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. I've got to come through His way. It's a humble way, but it's a simple way, thank God. I come to know that he died in my place to pay the penalty of my sin and that he rose from the dead in victory over death and can give me his righteousness because he rose from the dead. But I must undergo that repentance, that change of perspective about God and about myself and about how I relate to him. And I must embrace what God lays out in His Word as the plan of salvation. And verse 47 says that this repentance is forgiveness. Repentance, I think, becomes forgiveness of sins. That's the message. That's what it is. That we can be delivered from our sins. That that which separates us from God can be removed. That's why I love the message of the Gospel, why I love the work that we do as Christians in this world. Yes, it's a hard message to tell someone they're going to face a God of judgment, and yes, it's a hard message to tell them that they're sinners. But what a privilege to bear the news that there's forgiveness in Jesus Christ. He'll wash every sin that you have ever committed clean. He'll take it away. But you've got to come on His terms, and that's repentance. And in that one act, you turn your back on the world as you embrace in faith the Lord Jesus Christ and the provision that he gives. That's the message. Now, to whom is this message to be proclaimed? Verse 47. This is also very important, or we would not be here today, most of us, if not all of us. What does verse 47 say? It is to be preached in his name to all nations. That's us. All nations, Gentiles, non-Jews. One of Luke's primary purposes, I believe, in writing this gospel and, in fact, in writing the historical account in Acts of the early church is to show the Gentile inclusion in God's plan. That it's not now only the Jews that can relate directly to God. It's not, we do not come to God by becoming a Jew, but we come to God one person at a time of all nations. The proclamation in view is to all nations and verse 48, who is to proclaim this message? You are witnesses of these things. Witnesses, not apologetic defenders, not lecturers, not debaters. They were to proclaim their own experience. They were to witness what they had seen. Now think about this. The irony of this is rich. Where are the disciples right now? They've barricaded themselves in a room behind a locked door. 
They're really not very interested in talking to anybody outside of their circle about Christ right now. And Jesus is telling them that the Old Testament, written through the past centuries, prophesies that you guys are going to unlock that door, you're going to go through it, and you're going to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. You are in there. It prophesies about you. Believe it or not, you're going to walk out of here and proclaim the gospel. They're going to witness Christ to the nations. And I can imagine there's this deflated, who, us? We're going to do that? How are we going to do that? The powers that be are out there, and they are desperately anxious to kill us. Where in the world are we going to find the courage to proclaim what we've seen here? Jesus never leaves us comfortless. And in verse 49, he says, I am going to send you what my Father has promised. But stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. There's a lot in that verse. I'm going to send you what my Father has promised. Where does he point again? Right back to the Old Testament. There's something promised there in the Old Testament which will give you the strength and the power and the wherewithal to proclaim the gospel. Notice what Jesus says. Wait. Stay here in the city and wait. Don't go. Not yet. Wait. Now, I imagine that at this moment, Jesus could have stirred up a fair bit of enthusiasm right then and there to proclaim him resurrected. I'm sure that the disciples would have been filled with fear, but I'm sure they probably would have gone to their death to say he's alive right here here at this point. But God knows, the Savior knows, they would be hopelessly disadvantaged without the presence of the Holy Spirit. That's what's coming. That's what's prophesied. The Spirit's presence after the Son leaves will be sent to them, and they need the Holy Spirit's presence to witness this gospel. They could not, in the end, rely upon emotion. They could not, in the end, rely upon enthusiasm for this mission. They must have nothing less than the power of the Holy Spirit upon them. And so Jesus says, wait. I've got a few things to do down here to make clear that I have risen from the dead. Then the time will come. And then you will leave. You'll leave Jerusalem. And you'll leave Judea. And you'll leave Samaria. And you will go to the ends of the earth to proclaim my word. To witness the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And think, Christian, just think of what these uneducated and fearful men accomplished. As their enemies said... They turn the world upside down. So I say to you as we close out this morning, please understand this. The resurrection story is still unfolding. It's not a past event that we come here to commemorate. We're part of the event. Jesus' resurrection is not an end event. The message of redemption in Christ through His death and resurrection is not really completed until Jesus comes back. Because part and parcel of this message is not only his prophesied death and resurrection, but the prophesied proclamation of this message to all the nations. 
And we in this church are part of that process, and we understand that. As we reach to different parts of this world with the message of Christ, we're seeking to fulfill this part of the resurrection story. That the message would be proclaimed to people who've not heard it. And if you know this message, you as well are involved in it in your daily life with neighbors and friends and those around you to proclaim and to witness what Jesus has done. You're part of the story. As Jesus put it in Matthew 24 and verse 14, the gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations and then the end will come. The resurrection story is not over. It's in a sense a beginning. It's a fulfillment of past prophecy, but it's an event that goes on and you are part of the event. And so we celebrate today a central theme in the outworking of God's saving purposes. But we are not to be passive observers. We are to be active participants in the drama. Our rejoicing in Christ's resurrection is to spill out into proclamation. We're to be witnesses until... The God-ordained end arrives. If you're here this morning and saying in your mind, I just don't understand it, I want you to know that we will pray for you. And we will pray that God opens your eyes to see what only He can help you to see. But if there's a stirring in your heart, I call you to think about His death and resurrection, and I call you to consider this thought, and only God can open your eyes to it, but I call you to consider this thought. That's your only way into His presence. That's the only way that your sins can be washed clean. Now, if you have another way, you're going to pursue that way to your own destruction. But if you can begin to see it, grab it. His death in your place to pay the penalty of your sin. His resurrection, showing that God accepted His work and providing for you now resurrection life through the gift of the Holy Spirit that He will send to you. Will you repent? Will you turn in your perspective and embrace this message? For those of us who know Christ as Savior, I hope that you can get a sense of it today. You're part of the story. You. You might as well have your name written in the Old Testament. You're part of the story. You live on the other side of the cross. You are part of the resurrection event. You are a witness of the saving power of Jesus Christ. Proclaim it. Be part of the story. Share the truth. May God bless our efforts. to his glory and honor. Let's bow for prayer.